0: Let's pray. Father God, we begin this morning by praising you, for we are a people that are glad in our maker. We are a people that rejoice in you as king of the universe. We praise your name this morning with singing and worship because you have performed amazing salvation for us and all those that are part of your kingdom. And we know that we could not perform it on our own. We praise you because your son Jesus has been high and lifted up in both a death that brought us forgiveness and a resurrection and enthronement that leads us to new life. And so we praise you. We also give you thanks for the wonderful camping trip that many in this body went on this last week. We rejoice in your commands for fellowship and mutual love and edification and that we were able to see these gifts among us this last week. This morning, Lord, we also take a moment to confess our own sin. Each of us in this room have been acutely aware of the individual sin that we have performed this week. We have broken the reflection of your image many times, and for that, we confess that we are still a broken people in need of your grace, your grace to save and your grace to sanctify. We find, as Paul noted in Romans 7, we are indeed a people that wrestle with our flesh daily. Please empower us to be those that instead cry out for you and for your help, so that we might lean heavily upon your spirit enacting your lordship through your word and your people. Forgive us this morning where we have failed and guide us in your way as we hear your word and celebrate you. Please build us up to be sent out as your emissaries to a lost and chaotic world. And Father, that is who we pray for next, the lost and dying world around us. Lord, we celebrate this morning that the law of our land at the federal level no longer legitimizes the murder of innocent life. We are thankful that it has now been written in clear language that the man-made constitution of this country does not confer the ending of a child's life as a right. We praise you for this work over the last week and we thank you for the many people, from the activists all the way to the Supreme Court justices that served to make this moment possible. We pray for your protection over them as the fallout comes over the next weeks, months, and years. But Lord, we also pause to take stock of all that surrounds this judicial act. We take a moment of silence to remember the roughly 60 million innocent children who have had their lives ended before birth in this country since the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973. God, please forgive us as a nation. We also remember the millions of women who have been lied to about the effects of an abortion and what it would have on them, their future, their future families, and their own mental, emotional, and spiritual health. God, please forgive us. We also remember the women within the larger church and statistically the reality that there are those even within this local church who are still wrestling with the guilt that the enemy continues to use to condemn them even years after their abortion and after they have confessed to you and received your forgiveness. Please comfort them. And lastly, Lord, please forgive us for thinking that enacting laws in any capacity is the ultimate solution. While we are called to work for the welfare of this country, state, and city, please help us to remember that moving the decision on the legality of abortion back to the states is not a solution that ushers in your reign. It is currently serving to reinforce the fact that what is ultimately needed is redemption, conversion, and submission to your rule. As some states make abortion illegal, and some enshrine its supposedly human legality, and our cities overrun with people on either side of the picket line with venom in their mouths and hate in their hearts, We instead come to you this morning to humbly ask that you might grant us your resolve for your law, your love, and your life in the midst of a world that so badly wants to devour us in its culture wars. Help us to keep our minds and hearts set upon you and your gospel so that we might continue to preach your word, which is what this world needs. This world shows its need for you in every moment It shows its ongoing rebellion against you, and yet you died to redeem us and draw us to yourself. And so we again cry out, Lord, come quickly and save us from ourselves. This morning, Father, we also pray for our brothers Nick and Brian as they are at Gracious Cross Reform Church here in Salem, to love that church and support them as they go through a difficult time. We pray that you would use Nick's preaching of the word there this morning, and Brian's love and encouraging spirit to care for the elders, deacons, and the church, and that it would help them in this difficult time we thank you that we as a covenant church family can provide support to another church in their pain it humbles us and reminds us that we have needed and will need the assistance of many others as we navigate the difficulties of our own humanity in our effort to strive after you we pray that nick's words would be of you for that church today and we also pray lord for salem reform baptist church and pastor gustavo Barros. lord as we see this current division that has caused one church family to now become these two we are reminded of the concerns of the first century church that we will even study today. It serves to remind us that while your kingdom has been inaugurated, it has not been consummated. And so we look forward to the day when all that remains of our divisive and sinful selves is that they are tossed away and what remains is the bride of your church, washed clean in your atoning work and carrying out the end of your redemptive plan in eternal worship. Please be with both local bodies this morning as they are served by those preaching. And Lord, lastly, we pray for ourselves. We pray pray that you would sanctify our, our hearts as we listen to our elder, pastor, and brother Tyler preach from your inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word. Please support him physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as he serves you and serves us. While all around us and even in your global church might be in chaos, we are thankful that we can be reminded of this truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May our hearts be open to hearing your word. In Jesus' name, we pray for all of this. Amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat.
1: Good morning. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, I think before I start, this is not on the script, I need to publicly repent in sackcloth and ashes for all of the times I've criticized Hans for going long. Um, If that's a little bit of foreboding of today's message... Uh, just what it is. Uh, as always, I feel the weight of preaching the word, uh, but also the tremendous joy that comes from the personal study that I get to do in preparation, and the privilege it is to be the Lord's instrument of encouragement and conviction. And the text before us this morning is among the most recognizable from revelation. And as we study through what it says, And its implications for us as Christ followers, I pray that we would hear it fresh. That it would renew our hearts and transform our minds to be more like Christ's. And so I'm going to invite you to turn to our text this morning in Revelation 19, verse 11. And while you're you're doing that, I'm going to introduce the text. As the Roman Empire grew in the 5th century BCE, it began to employ a practice that would unify its citizens and help galvanize the link between its organized religion it's civil government and it's military empire when a victorious emperor or general returned to rome they would celebrate the victory by holding what is known as a triumphus or a triumph for those of you who don't eeksbay atnley during that ceremony a processional would start just outside the city and proceed down the main road to the temple of jupiter the god of war where the general would offer sacrifices in thanksgiving to that god The general would be known as what is called the Vir Triumphalus, or the Man of Triumph, and he would be given godlike status for the day. He would be clothed in a fine white toga, edged in red and gold and red boots, symbolically representing the blood of his enemies trampled under his feet. He would be given a gold laurel crown to symbolize his victory, and he would also wear the finest crowns and jewelry captured from his defeated enemies. The victor would ride in a gold-gilded chariot pulled by four white horses. And preceding the victor would be all of the captured enemies and slaves who would be forced to walk in chains ahead of the victor. And also behind him would be his family on white horses, followed by his soldiers also dressed in fine white togas and crowned with laurel leaves. These soldiers would lead the crowd along the parade route in songs of praise to the general and to the emperor. The extravagance and pomp of these events were massively expensive to put on and would have pumped huge amounts of money into the economy because everyone participated. And as Americans, we instantly recognize this tradition because we observe the tradition of a triumphus that share many of the same goals as ancient Rome. Each year we hold a triumph in rotating cities across the country where we pay homage and celebrate the man of triumph. We give honor and worship to our organized religion. We celebrate the growth of our economy and empire. We celebrate victories that were won with hard-fought battles, in the trenches, by dropping bombs or throwing bullets, where our side came out and punched them in the mouth. We've seen even victories won with religious themes, a heave and a prayer, an immaculate reception, a Hail Mary, or my least favorite, the helmet catch. While it has been many decades since a triumph has been held in this part of the country, 1977, sad. I've personally celebrated and enjoyed many of the triumphs held in the New England area over the past 20 years. I have enthusiastically applauded the efforts of the greatest field general ever to do battle, the greatest Veer Triumphalus, and at times have even taken his name on my back. Now, I say this tongue-in-cheek, there's nothing inherently wrong with sport. I obviously enjoy them. But the point is that even at this distance in time away from the original origin, we recognize this idea of triumph. And it's this idea of triumph that John, in the first century, tries to communicate to his audience. And it's this idea of triumph that the revelator is subverting in surprising ways to encourage the audience in their journey of faithful endurance to Christ. This morning, we're going to see the triumph of Christ, the victor. The triumph of Christ, the victor. And when I think of this passage that we're about to study, I've heard it taught with emphasis as a climactic battle between good and evil, and that this is a picture of Christ as an action hero-like warrior who embodies and gives justification for all of man's violent tendencies. One former evangelical influencer proclaimed about this text, and I quote, In Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. That is the guy I can worship. I can't worship the hippie diaper halo Jesus because I can't worship a guy I can beat up. End quote. Now this caricature of a crucified, resurrected, and glorified Christ has little to do with the the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the revealed person of Jesus Christ presented in the Gospel narratives, or the risen king in the New Testament that the New Testament writers willingly proclaimed and gave their lives for. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit says this morning from Revelation. Let's read our text together. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. The immediate context of this passage stands in contrast to the passage that Nick taught last week. Feel free to go back and give that a listen if you missed it. But last week, the king was calling all the subjects loyal to him to a feast in his honor. And today we see that the Lord is sending out another invitation and continuing to remind the saints of his faithfulness. The first thing we'll look at this morning is this, the authority of the writer. The authority of the writer. We see right away that this is another scene shift. John is speaking with an angel And he mentions that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, meaning that any time the true story of Jesus and who he is is proclaimed, that is prophecy. And so somewhat ironically, the scene shifts, and heaven is opened, and John is about to prophesy, to proclaim the true story of Jesus. We see this image of heaven opening, and it should remind us of the other times we've seen heaven open in Revelation. When we saw heaven open in Revelation chapter 4, It was with the throne room scene, setting the stage for the seven seals to be opened. When we saw the heaven open again in chapter 15, it was connected with the seventh plague. And then when we saw it open in chapter 11, it was with the seventh trumpet. Each time it signifies another important section of the vision, specifically connected to the Lord's judgment. It should be no surprise then that here we see these scene shifts from a different perspective. I don't need to say it at this point, but for those of you who have been listening, it is indeed another recapitulation. We're winding closer and closer to the end of the vision, and the lens is honing in on the climax. And John sees heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And John, again, gives the specifics of the horse. It's white. And as I mentioned in the introduction, this would signify to the audience a victorious warrior. Where we saw Christ enter Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday to cries of, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. In the gospel narrative, showing his humble service, we now see him pictured as a warrior on a white horse coming in victory. What's interesting here is that John doesn't name Jesus specifically. He just describes the character of the writer and lets the audience draw its own conclusions about who it is. But the audience will instantly recognize him because it calls back to the beginning of the book. He says the one sitting on the horse is called faithful and true. This calls back to chapter 3 where Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea and calls himself the faithful and true witness. He counsels the church to be zealous, to get the white robes which only he can give. We saw this idea alluded to last week and in verse 14 of today's text. He then tells the church that those that conquer will sit on the judgment throne with Christ. Again, speaking of the theme of the writer's authority to judge. And John goes on to write, in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now in ancient Hebrew culture, it wasn't actually the king who had the authority to wage war. It was only at the direction of Yahweh himself that the nation of Israel had the ability to wage war. And even, though, and even then, it was with limited terms of engagement. But here we see this writer judges and makes war. How did this writer get this authority? Well, here's what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 28:18. He said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age." Jesus says that the authority has been given to him. And as a result, we as his followers implore the world to follow the good news of the gospel in obedience to our king. Here's what, G- what else Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus, the Son of Man, prophesied in Daniel 7, has received authority from God the Father to execute judgment on his behalf because by nature of being one with God, Jesus is a perfect representation of God and can render justice that is based on eternal truth and holiness. And John goes on in verse 12 of Revelation 19 here to add this description of authority. He says, His eyes are as flames of fire. This picture communicates to the early audience that the writer sees all things and judges all things. And we see this image calling us back to Daniel and to the introduction in Revelation where Jesus is described as having fiery eyes and a two-edged sword coming from his mouth. In chapter one, Jesus is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. He says he has died And is alive forevermore. He has the keys to death and Hades. He has authority over life and death because he is God. And back in Revelation 19, he then describes the writer's having many diadems or crowns on his head. This is in direct contrast to the dragon with its seven diadems and the beast with its ten diadems. John just says many crowns. It's symbolic language. It's not necessarily literal. It's just there's a lot of them. It signifies that Jesus has the supreme authority to rule the entirety of heaven and the cosmos versus the temporary limited authority given to the beast. The next phrase in our passage from today that John uses is a name written that no one knows but himself. Now this is an interesting phrase that can mean a few different things. But it seems like there is a clear connection between the letter to the church at Pergamum and Revelation 2. Because the letter is from the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the promise is to those that conquer, they will be given a new name that no one knows except for the one who receives it. So if we consider how this ties into the authority of the writer, we see that he has the authority to give out those names to his followers. To those who have conquered. The son has the power to give life. He has the power to execute judgment. He has the power to give out that hidden manna. Jesus says he is the bread of life. But apparently at this point in the vision, John doesn't know what that secret name is. And again, this is just one possible idea. But the main idea is that the writer has the divine authority. And he reveals himself to those he will, when he will, By the means that he will. The rider on the white horse has come with the authority to enact righteous judgments. You see, Jesus is worthy of our trust. He does not change from who he says he is and who he has revealed himself to be. So we have confidence to follow his example, even at great personal cost. Christ calls each of us to pick up our cross and to follow him. So brothers and sisters, here is my first question for us to consider this morning. Do we trust Christ as our king to be faithful and true? Do we give him the authority as Lord of the cosmos to tell us how to organize our lives and to guide how we live? Do we have faith that if we pick up that cross, that Christ will use his authority in love, not in power, but in love, to those who follow and obey his just commands? Or have we bought into the lie of the beast that all authority is bad, even authority wielded in love by a holy, loving God? In carrying the cross, Christ is inviting us to submit to his authority by following his example, to lay down our lives To pick up his righteousness, the garment that can only be won through faithful, obedient endurance. Christ has already secured the victory by his authority as God. It is ours to follow him in humble obedience. And that brings us to point number two this morning. Victory secured by the blood of the self-sacrificing king. Victory secured by the blood of the self-sacrificing king. Let's go back and reread this section just one more time so it's fresh. He is clothed, starting in verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to focus in here on what the, what the writer is wearing. And I hope you'll see why it's important, why we can't just gloss over it. In a traditional Roman triumph, as I mentioned earlier, the victor would wear a robe trimmed in red and red boots symbolizing the blood of his enemies. But remember, this is a subversion of this classic trope. John is saying, here's what you would expect from the beast, but here is how Jesus does it differently. Many will teach that the blood on Jesus' robe is the blood of his enemies. And while coming from a violent, power-crazed culture, this image suits us, I would humbly submit to those teachers that the blood does not mean what you think it means. Everywhere else in the book of Revelation, we see blood exclusively referring to the blood of the saints and the blood of the Lamb. So its use here as blood of God's enemies would be incongruent with the progressive recapitulation view that we've been teaching from. There are some other clues from the text about the nature and significance of this bloody robe. Because immediately after we see the rider with the robe dipped in blood, we see the armies of heaven, and it mentions specifically that they're clothed in garments of pure white. And we've seen these garments before, as recently as last week. But we also see them in the letters to the churches at Sardis and Laodicea. Christ implores them to get the white garments that can be only obtained through him and through conquering. And we also see them in chapter 7 of Revelation. Here's what it says in Revelation seven thirteen and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The followers of the Lamb have made their garments white by washing them in the blood of the Lamb. Meaning their righteous attire was made such because they have been thoroughly covered by Jesus' shed blood. The immediate appearance of these white-clad saints in contrast with the blood-stained writer gives a huge hint about where the blood was flowing. In the opening of this section, the writer is described as faithful and true, and it says he judges and makes war. And again, this plays into the triumph picture. And according to Levitical law, issues of a judicial nature needed at least two witnesses. In this scene, the robe-stained blood serves as an evidentiary witness to the gruesome death and bloodshed that Jesus suffered at the hands of the beast. We see in the Passion narrative that Jesus is clothed in a purple robe, a twisted crown of thorns is laid on his head, and he is beaten and bruised and ultimately nailed to a cross. Blood is flowing from his head, his back, his hands, and his feet. But before this, the crowd was even given a brief moment to change course. Pilate offers them the option to choose between the violent insurrectionist Barabbas or Jesus, the Christ. And their response is just what we've seen in Revelation from those set against the Lamb. There is no repentance or recognition of wrongdoing. Here's what it says. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning... He took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, "I am innocent of this man's blood; see to it yourselves." And the people answered, "His blood be on us and on our children." Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Jesus' own blood stands as a witness to the injustice and the violence perpetuated by the beast and his prophet against the lamb. It is this witness and the testimony about Jesus that makes the writer just in his judgments against the beast and justified in his war against the kingdom of the beast. And then it says at the end of verse 15 in Revelation that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. We've also seen this image before in Revelation. In Revelation 14, we saw Christ harvest the grapes of wrath and tread out the grapes with blood flowing to the height of a horse for miles and miles. Here's what it says in Revelation 14, 19 and 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes, the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 16 stadia. I want you to pay attention to the language here of where the winepress was. It was outside of the city. Again, when we see blood flowing in Revelation, it is the blood of the saints or the blood of the Lamb. So how do we know whose blood is pictured here on the robe of the writer? Well, here's what it says in Hebrews 13, through 15. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest is a sacrifice for sin and burned outside the camp. and his prophet outside the city at Golgotha. And as Christ's followers, we pick up our crosses and we go out to him outside the city, and we suffer the same reproach as our King, that we might be welcomed into Zion, the everlasting city of our God. The blood being trod out is the blood of the martyrs who are crying out for vengeance, of whom Jesus is the firstfruits. God is angry with his enemies because they have shed the blood of the innocent. And Christ is treading out for Babylon a special vintage of her own making. Here's what we've seen so far in Revelation. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fall. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And the tin horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Here's what else it says. Go to the next slide, Jordan. Pay her back as she has paid herself back, as she, she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who had been slain on earth. And then finally it says, For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. I'll reference these texts later, but we can see that there is great meaning then in the suffering of the saints. We see that Christ achieved victory over his enemies through suffering at the hands of Babylon. And the way then that we conquer is not by the shedding of the blood of our enemies, but by the shedding of our own blood. We become like Christ, faithfully enduring the worst that the beast and his agents can do to us. But in the midst, we don't lose heart because we know that Christ has already overcome the world. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church. Philippians 3, 8-11, it says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The means by which we defeat death and attain a resurrection is by faith in Christ that leads us to share in our sufferings with him. The very fact that his robe is covered in his own blood is what allows him to defeat the injustice and death brought on by Babylon. Brothers and sisters, this means that we have to allow ourselves to suffer. We can't avoid suffering if we're to be renewed in the image of Christ. And this is incredibly difficult to do in a culture that says if it's difficult, if it's painful, If it takes any amount of time or sustained effort, then it's either bad for you or you're not doing it right. If something causes you suffering on any level, you should avoid it and just be true to yourself. When we allow ourselves to sit in our grief, in our agony, and in our pain instead of avoiding it, pretending it doesn't exist or constantly distracting ourselves, We share in the same sufferings as Christ. And he has promised to comfort us in the midst of those sufferings that we might faithfully endure to the end. You see, God uses our suffering to draw us closer to him. When we suffer, we realize the connections that we still have to this broken world, to Babylon. And our thoughts are turned heavenward, The only place to put our hope becomes Christ and in Him crucified because we realize the futility of placing our faith in things of this world. Friends, is there an area of suffering you need to embrace in your life right now instead of avoiding? I confessed to my discipleship group this past week that I was again struggling with my desire for superficial comfort the antithesis of suffering. And those of you who saw my wetsuit, my giant tent, and my French press this weekend know that the struggle is real. <laughs> but over the last few months in working through the end of a very difficult school year, all of the health issues in my immediate family, the exhaustion of parenting three small children, combined with the constant barrage of saddening news in the world. I felt my emotional suffering take me to some pretty grim places. And I shared with you, even the last time that I preached, I found myself asking, God, where are you? How much longer? But even in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit was doing his work in me. He was untethering my hope in being a perfect parent. He was untethering my hope in finding satisfaction in my job. He was untethering my hope in my health and in my family's health. He was untethering my hope in humanity's ability to fix itself. But I was not left untethered. You see, this study through Revelation has been personally very timely for me because it has reminded me to endure faithfully. It has reminded me of the great anchor of my faith, the only place worthy of my hope and faith, the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and glorification of Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, God put on humanity and lived among us, pointing us to the Father. That even though he was to be murdered, he faithfully endured suffering. That he would pay the price for the sins of the saints. And be able to conquer his enemies and initiate his kingdom of peace. And then rising again three days later, he was vindicated in his suffering and proved once and for all that love and peace will conquer the hate and chaos of this world. And he now sits at the right hand of power in heaven, having secured for his saints a place beside him for all of eternity. Folks, we wait for that day that Christ will return as we see him pictured here on his white horse in ultimate victory. But we don't have to wait for that day in the future to realize the hope and peace of Christ. Today is the day to experience that hope and joy. The hope and joy of salvation bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. The Lord has graciously allowed me to experience small sufferings in my life that I might rely more and more on His Holy Spirit for peace, for hope, for joy. Not material things, my job, my relationship with my kids, or whatever dopamine hit I'm chasing that day. I'm learning that my hope and peace is in Christ and in the surpassing worth of knowing him. This is all my hope and peace, the hymn goes. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are not a people who seek out suffering, but we are also not a people who avoid it. May we experience the peace of God this week as we allow him to be our hope and peace in the midst of our suffering. If you want to experience the hope and joy of the salvation that I'm talking about, and maybe you're not sure what the next step is for you, please talk to one of the pastors here after the service. We'd love to point you to the hope we found in Christ. And back in our text in Revelation, we see that the writer uses a sharp sword from his mouth to strike down the nations. And he says it will, he will rule them with a rod of iron. This imagery shows again that he has the authority to judge, that his judgments and rule will last forever. And while this picture connotes a violent image in our minds, we should remember that the sword from his mouth is simply the truth of his word. He judges the nations by his words when he says in John 3.36, John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. His sword is simply the reminder and the playing out of the natural consequences he has already proclaimed. God's rule will last forever, and the truths of his word will serve as a guide. The word rule could also be translated to shepherd, I said this to the grade school kids the last time I taught them, and I'll say it here now. God's law is not harsh, and it is not complicated. It is simple. Jesus neatly sums it up for us. Love God and love others. Now this certainly does not mean that it's easy for us to do all the time, but it is simple and clear. God's word keeps us on the narrow path. It corrects us when we stray and it guides us to clear waters. Think to Psalm 23. The rod and the staff are a comfort because they guide the sheep and protect the sheep from their enemies. God's word comforts us and protects us from heading down the path of destruction. The nations should rejoice that they are ruled by Christ's law, the law of love, instead of the law of the beast, which is to seize and maintain power by any means necessary." And then we come to verse 16, the infamous line about the tattoo on the thigh. What does it mean? On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And just so I'm clear, it's not immediately clear from the text that it's a tattoo. I know that there are certain members, Hans, who might want to justify his next tattoo, but he's going to have to look elsewhere in scripture for that. What it says in verse 16 could mean something written on the part of his robe that hangs off the thigh. So if you think of someone sitting up on a horse, naturally the robe is going to hang over the thigh. It could also be an allusion to perhaps a sword hilt. Uh, Psalm 45 speaks to this. We don't have time to cover it in detail this morning, but I would commend it to you for further reading Psalm 45. It speaks to the coming Messiah and his kingdom. And as we've seen here in Revelation, we can get hung up in the trees and miss the forest. So whether or not it's an actual tattoo is not the important idea that John is communicating. What is important is the title and the location where it's written. In ancient times, the thigh was a place that signified a solemn vow or covenant. Instead of a handshake agreement like we have today, in those days you would place your hands under each other's thighs and swear by whatever God you worship to do what you said you were do, you would do. I'm glad we've moved to handshakes. <laughs> what John is communicating is that the writer is this person. And he is fulfilling his covenant in his capacity as this person, the Lord of Lord and King of Kings. In today's language, John might have pictured the writer with one of those silly novelty tees that says, I'm your Huckleberry or to go a generation younger, built different. John wants the audience to know that there is no mistaking that the writer is that guy. He is that guy. The title King of Kings and Lord of Lords has already been seen in Revelation 17, but its first usage goes back to Deuteronomy 10. We heard Ariel read it earlier. Let's go back there and read it. If you want to turn with me to Deuteronomy 10... And I'm going to start reading in verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Verse 13. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong heaven And the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous As the stars of heaven. Here we see Moses coming down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments for the second time and putting them into the Ark of the Covenant. And after putting the law of God before the Israelites, he speaks to them. And here the Lord is reminding the Israelites of his character, of his power, and his justice. He is reminding his people that there is none in heaven beside him. All power and authority to accomplish Whatever he says belongs to him. And I would suggest that this allusion back to God delivering the law to his people through Moses is another witness against the rebellious people who are about to stand judged by a righteous and holy God. The Lord has made a covenant with his people, and there will be blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. The name on the thigh of the writer identifies him with the covenantal God of the Torah. With Yahweh Himself. God has promised to purify a kingdom of people for Himself and to rightly and fairly judge those who rebel against His rule. Okay, put a bookmark there in Deuteronomy because we're going to come back to it. But I want to go back to Revelation 19. And I want us just to consider for a second how dense that section of text is that we've studied so far, just from 11 to 16. It's packed with imagery and illusions that speak to the rider's authority, his divine justice and power, and it shows us the means by which the victory is accomplished and is meant to leave us with a sense of awe at the holiness of Jesus, the rider on the white horse. We are left with no doubt that whatever happens next, the Almighty God is justified and ultimately loving and carrying out. Judgment. This section of text establishes and gives an explanation for what happens next. In the last section of our text this morning, we see a feast of just desserts. A feast of just desserts. Let's pick up in verse 17. It's my opportunity to preach hellfire and brimstone. You guys really think of me as a hellfire and brimstone preacher, don't you? Yeah, I need a sturdier podium to pound. Here we see the flip side of the coin that we saw last week, where we saw invitations being sent out for a wedding feast Here, the angel invites the birds of the air to what's called the Great Supper of God to eat the flesh of his enemies, great and small. This graphic imagery is another portrait of God's justice and faithfulness. Again, the Roman triumph is being taken and subverted to make a point. Normally, the triumph would be celebrated after the climactic battle. But here we see the irony in that all of the forces of the beast are gathered to make war against Christ and his followers. They're anticipating that there's going to be a battle. And it's almost like this roller coaster of expectations where we're not expecting to see a battle, but then wait, we are and then we're not, and our expectations are kind of tossed in the air. But ultimately, there is no epic battle. There is actually not even a reference to bloodshed. The beast and his prophet are captured alive and thrown into the lake of fire the ones responsible for the deception of the nations are subjected to captivity in a fiery prison, and the rest are slain by the sword that comes from the writer's mouth, and the birds are gorged with the flesh of those who were slain. If this were a prestige TV series, we'd all be thinking, wow, I'm really undissatisfied with that ending. That was really weird. But in the narrative of Revelation, we see this symbolic language that is meant to communicate hope and endurance under tribulation to the first century church. And in this section of text, we see that the saints are finally vindicated and that the rebellious are finally condemned. The world and its systems are looking for a massive conflict. They want to perpetuate the cycle of violence and enslavement to sin. And so the Lord obliges them, but not in the way the beast wants. To engage with violence would fuel the beast and his empire. So God in his wisdom and mercy simply allows them to have what they want but not in the way they want. Remember, when I read from all of those passages in Revelation, they've been storing up judgment on themselves. They've been fermenting a wine of righteous wrath. God has been storing up this wrath to vindicate his saints and judge the beast. And now the time has finally come For the beast and his prophet and all those who have continued to rebel against God to drink the cup they have prepared, to reap what they have sown. And in my house, we call this a natural consequence, or a natty cons, as my son says. (laughs) The sword from the writer's mouth represents his righteous judgment. He proclaims that the consequence for the continued rebellion of the peoples is the natural consequence of sin, which is death. Jesus does not add any more than the natural consequence of their sinfulness. You see, the wrath of God can be viewed as the removal of his life-giving power. As the creator of the universe, only God can sustain life. John 1 says in Christ there is life. The opposite is also true. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. Apart from the Creator, life cannot be sustained. The wrath of God is the removal of His life-giving sustenance. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy, and let's look at Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. It's kind of a split section of text here. We're going to start in verse 1. Deuteronomy twenty-eight 1. <clears throat> And if you faithfully obey the voice of all the Lord your God, of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command to you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. And then it goes on in verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways." Moses and the priests have delivered the commandments of God to the people of Israel, and they are letting them know what will happen if they obey. The Lord is clear. If you obey my commands, I will bless you. But let's look ahead to the curses. Just a little bit further, um, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I have commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And what are those curses? Let's look at verse 22. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And then ahead in verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of the mind. It's just a a brief selection of what's going to happen The Lord lets his people know what will happen if they disobey his commandments. And this is not a threat coming from a petulant deity. These are the loving warnings sent to God's creation that he loves and desires a relationship with. We've seen these things repeated in Revelation, culminating with the curse found in verse 26. The birds of the air come to eat the bodies of the disobedient and rebellious. Jump ahead in Deuteronomy to chapter 29. It's probably just one page over, maybe. And look at verse 10. And this is where the people of Israel renew the covenant. It says You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood, to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he, he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making the sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord, and with whoever is not here with us today. This sounds familiar, right? The blessings and the curses aren't just for some people. They're for everyone. And we are all accountable for living in obedience to Christ, from the small to the great. But for those who have given their lives to Christ and taken on his righteousness and committed to following him as king with our time, talents, and treasures, this is not a scary thing. The Bible tells us that Christ has become the curse for us, So that we can receive the promised blessings. We see the saints, the armies of heaven in white robes, the ones that were made that way because of the blood of the Lamb. It is only by faith in Christ that we can be justified. God has once again demonstrated his faithfulness and character. From his self-description to Moses in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. From that self-description to the revealed person of Jesus Christ, to the returning king, this rider on a white horse, coming to judge the world, his character is faithful and true. You can trust that he will bring justice Justice this brings glory to himself and vindication to his saints. As believers, we rejoice in the judgment of God insofar as it brings an end to the beast and its evil and injustice and allows God's kingdom to reign fully. But we do not rejoice at the destruction of the people who have been deceived by the beast and chosen separation and rebellion from a loving, life-giving father. Instead, we must have the mind of Christ. When we look at the Lord's justice, we must see two sides of the same coin. Salvation for the saints and vindication. Now, there's a big difference, certainly in today's language, between vengeance in a sense of vindication and vengeance in a sense of revenge. It would be out of character for Christ to preach. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if any of you are struck on the cheek, turn to the other one, turn the other one. And if anyone demands to borrow your shirt, offer him your jacket also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, offer to go with him too. It would be out of character for him to preach that than to celebrate that he gets to erase this part of his creation that he created and said was good because they've offended him and chosen rebellion. Here's what we heard Lauren read. From Romans chapter 12, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christ actively preaches against vengeance, and so does Paul. This isn't a perfect analogy, but as I was preparing for this teaching, I was reminded of the scene from I Am Legend, that early 2000s zombie movie with Will Smith. And in this movie, there's a virus that infects people, and turns them into zombies. And only Will Smith's blood has the cure. And in one of the climactic scenes, his dog is infected, and he has to put his dog down before it turns on him. And I imagine the rider on the white horse having many of the same feelings here in this scene. There must be a real heaviness in bearing the sword and pronouncing judgment, but he knows that he must do what needs to be done. I imagine many of the same feelings exist in Christ here in this moment that existed when he was up on the stage in Jerusalem with Pontius Pilate, listening as the crowd chanted, Crucify him! Crucify him! His blood be on our heads. Seeing a world of goodness he had created, corrupted by the beast, and people whom he loved, whom he offered his eternal love and life to, Respond with such hatred and vitriol surely would have been heartbreaking. But with a word, Christ allows the rebellious world to come to its self destructive end. All those who rejected him, he is allowed to have exactly what they want, separating them from his life giving presence. Christ removes this life sustaining presence. From this rebellious people and its exit light, internight for all who have chosen the beast. Because of the hyperviolent culture we live in, we are programmed to view Jesus as the next Marvel superhero, coming to avenge the death of his friends. In our worldview, we want the rock of our salvation to look like Dwayne Johnson on a white horse, not the disfigured, beaten, suffering servant of Isaiah 53. We want our Christ to be an influencer, someone with clout and celebrity status who will give his followers power and influence, not the transient rabbi who committed his life to humility and who promises persecution and hardships for those who follow him. So the question that I naturally asked myself as I studied this passage, and the question that as pastors we have continued to emphasize during our study through Revelation, is this. Do I view Jesus rightly through the lens of Scripture? Do I view Jesus rightly through the lens of Scripture? The second question I found myself asking is, am I balancing my cry of, how long, Lord, must we endure the violence of the beast? With the cry of, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, Jesus, the one wearing the robe, soaked in his own blood, was comfortable leaving it all up to the Father to vindicate him. In the midst of false accusations, slander, and physical beatings, Jesus remained silent. Now, this does not mean it was easy for Jesus. This does not mean it will be easy for us as his people. Jesus himself was literally sweating blood as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, is there any other way? But he ultimately left vindication to the only one who can judge rightly. And as he was being arrested, one of his closest friends comes to his defense and chops off the ear of one of his enemies. And immediately Jesus heals the ear and says to Peter, Put away the sword. All who take the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and he would not immediately send 12 legions of angels? But how then would Scripture be fulfilled? Even though as the divine creator, Christ has the capacity and even the right to seize his kingdom by force. Jesus was committed to defeating the power of sin and death by obedience to the Father and by not perpetuating the cycle of rebellious human commitment to self-vengeance. Even his last words on the cross reflect this. As the blood is dripping off his body, he says, it is finished. In other words, I've traveled through this life I've suffered the ultimate injustice. I've looked sin and death in the face and have responded with obedience and faithful endurance. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus' heart was not to see these people destroyed by their rebellious actions, but to see them saved as they witnessed firsthand what true love laying down his life for his friends looked like. He gave up his rights even as the fully God second member of the eternal self-existent trinity for revenge. Into your hands I commend my spirit, he said, as he breathed his last breath. Jesus fully trusted that the Father would vindicate him and that the Lord would be his salvation. Brothers and sisters, are we comfortable leaving our vindication in the hands of the one who preached and practiced nonviolent restorative justice? Or would we prefer being the Lord's agent of vengeance, seeking out our own justification and revenge? Do we actively defend the gospel by graciously pointing others to the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus? Or are we looking to fight in the culture war, actively provoking others who disagree with us, putting stumbling blocks in front of the gospel, and seeking to justify our own opinions? Do we trust Christ to be our vindication? I'm not just talking on an existential level. I'm talking about every level. Friends, we can't skip straight from the incarnation to the crucifixion and then right to Christ's return and gloss over the in-between parts. As disciples, we must allow Jesus' life to have meaning apart from a father-son legal transactional checkbox That produces an appropriate penal substitution. That is certainly not to minimize the cost that Jesus paid to rescue us from our sin. It's simply to say when we skip over how Jesus lived his life, the things he said and did, his revealed character, our view of salvation can be disconnected from the moral, ethical, and spiritual implications that Jesus' life has for its followers. So, brothers and sisters, I ask again, do you trust Christ to be your vindication? If you are faced with the loss of a job because of the gospel, do you trust Christ? If you are faced with strained family relationships because of the gospel, do you trust Christ? If you are faced with the removal of all the comforts Of the world, the things the world says is good, gross materialism, a constant social media presence, a loud voice and perceived power in the political sphere because of the gospel? Do you trust Christ to be your vindication? The world is full of people seeking their own vengeance, their own forms of justice, their own salvation. But as ambassadors of a higher kingdom, we preach the gospel and we wait patiently for the Lord to do his work. Revelation has shown us that the Lamb does not take his kingdom by force, but by patient endurance through suffering. Jesus has the authority to judge, and we find our hope and peace, knowing that his suffering has made us righteous, and we will be vindicated by our King at the last day. We know that our salvation is secure, bought with the precious blood of the Lamb, and for those of us whom Christ has called We patiently await the return of our king. We know that Christ will judge those who continue in their rebellion. And so as strangers in a strange land, we continue to preach Christ crucified until he returns, that we might bring others to a saving knowledge of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Mission Fellowship, rest assured that your king will come. You will be conquerors with him and be vindicated If you continue in faithful obedience, may we live this week with our faith securely anchored to the cross, proclaiming the goodness of Christ until he returns. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful and true. We thank you for your word that encourages and convicts us. May we have ears to hear your word and respond in obedience to you. We love you because you first loved us. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk in the light this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.